The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. So we are in uh, the book of Corinthians, taking, going back to our routine is going through books of the New Testament, section by section, sometimes verse by verse. Uh, why the New Testament? Because Jesus Christ came to fulfill the New Covenant, and the New Testament is the New Covenant. It's the fulfillment of God's complete counsel and all that he would have us know. So the New Testament is fulfillment of the Old Testament, all of his promises and uh, the shadows are in the Old Testament. The fulfillment and reality is in the New Testament. And so that's why, and they are the words of Jesus and the revelation of Christ for his church primarily. And that's why we focus on the New Testament as a church. It's appropriate. Uh, we are going now through the book of First Corinthians. We did an introduction last week. Uh, we began to look at uh, the introduction or greeting to Paul's epistle in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that goes all the way to verse 9. And we just started with verse 1. You have on the back of your bulletin uh, just an outline that I gave you, That whether it's helpful, hope it is, you can follow along. That goes to verse 9. Four points that I want to take away and glean from that. By the way, if you need a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, if you want to borrow a Bible, the ushers are coming down. Hold it nice and high so they can see you. There's a hand. Uh, so we have four practical truths we want to pull away from uh, 1 Corinthians Chapter 1, verse 1 through 9, there's, there's many more than four, but I was just trying to get the highlights and the main points. And we covered the first one last week. Uh, the sermon that is now a sermon series, because this is part two, is called to a life of grace. Called to a life of grace uh, is what I called it. Because last week in Paul's greeting, it all goes together. It's like one paragraph. It's the first nine verses. He uses the word called three times. Uh, first in reference to himself, chapter 1, verse 1, Paul called as an apostle, appointed as an apostle, made an apostle by God, sovereignly, by God's choice. Then he uses the word calling again. Not only is Paul a, a, an apostle called, but also every Christian is called. And that's in verse 2. We'll look at that today. Uh, that we are saints by calling, by God's calling. We are appointed by God with a specific calling whether you realized as a christian you had a calling or not uh, you do clearly and we'll talk about what that is and then once again in verse 9 paul reminds every christian the corinthians uh, that they were called called by god for a very specific purpose so he uses this key verb three times just in a short span of nine verses hence that's kind of an overriding theme paul is reminding these corinthian believers that they have been called by god um, so we're going to look at point two today and i'm not going to make any promises that we get past point two because it is so rich in those two verses of first corinthians one verses two and three of what paul reminds the corinthians of we're going to look at those in this letter paul is this is a personal letter by the way first corinthians so we're kind of looking over the shoulder of paul we're eavesdropping in here as he's writing to the corinthians he starts out this letter with just great words of encouragement and blessing and then after verse nine He's going to get real personal with them and give them a lot of correctives and some admonitions and some exhortations and maybe a little bit of wagging the finger at them as their pastor and an apostle mixed in with some blessings and reminders. And he's going to do that for 16 chapters and we're going to follow along. And so as Paul's talking to the Corinthians, this letter is a personal letter to the Corinthians 2000 years ago. They were the original audience, but by God's design, 
God also wanted every other Christian of all ages to be blessed by and learn from this epistle, 1 Corinthians. And that's what's going to happen to us through every section that we go. Everything that Paul tells the Corinthians, there should be something to take away for us by way of benefit and nurturing us in our faith. And even in looking at just primarily verse 2 today, you're going to be surprised, or I hope you are, about how much meat there is to take away from verse 2 to apply to our own life, even though the original audience were people who lived on the other side of the world 2,000 years ago, different time, different culture. God's supernatural binding truths transcend all of that. So 1 Corinthians is absolutely relevant for you and for me as a Christian today and very practical uh, as a Christian and also for church life. So we'll see that. Uh, By way of review, for those of you maybe who were not here, just to bring you up to speed, uh, to tell you a little bit about the background of the letter to the Corinthians. According to the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul went on, we like to say, four missionary journeys where he went around and preached and planted churches, would stay in those churches and raise up some leadership and shepherd and pastor those churches. And then he'd go on to another city and plant another church. So Paul was a church planter. On his second missionary journey in around 50 A.D., the Apostle Paul left Jerusalem, which was kind of headquarters for church life, ventured out on a, another church planting journey and went up north from Jerusalem and ended up in two cities, uh, Derby and Lystra. And there he met a young, very impressive Christian convert young man named Timothy. And Paul had a team that was with him, Silas and a couple others. And he asked Timothy, hey, why don't you come with us and follow us and learn something and serve God and ministry and on the mission field and so Timothy joined them and then he went from uh, Lystra and Derby going towards Asia and then went around Asia and up to a city called Troas and it was on the ocean there and then Paul had a vision and God wanted the Apostle Paul to come on over to this place called Macedonia which is north of Greece and so Paul went with his team to Macedonia and began to work preach and plant churches there and he went to a city called Philippi which we're very familiar with He was there long enough to preach the gospel, get converts, get beat up and thrown in jail. And then they let him out of jail and chased him out of town. And so he went to the next city called Thessalonica and spent at least three Sabbaths preaching there. And some believed, but some anti-unbelieving Jews got very angry at Paul in the city of Thessalonica. And they chased him out of town. And so he went to the next available city, and that was Berea. And there he preached uh, to the Bereans, and they were a little more hospitable and welcoming than the mean Thessalonican uh, unbelieving Jews. And he had some good uh, ministry there in Berea, and, but eventually the Thessalonians heard, hey, that Paul guy, he's preaching over in that city close by in Berea. Let's go over there and chase him out of town. So the Thessalonian antagonists went to Berea, and they chased Paul out of Berea. So his ministry partners protected him, and they escorted him, and probably went at nighttime, and escorted him down to Athens and uh, some of his key ministry workers were left behind like Timothy and Silas and so then Paul goes all the way down into Greece, Athens, that world famous city and Paul's kind of there by himself and uh, he begins ministry and preaching there in Athens and getting into a lot of debates with these people who thought they were very erudite and intelligent and educated and thought Paul was uh, pretty much of a buffoon and a pinhead because he was saying weird things they'd never heard before and that was about Jesus and the resurrection. Uh, And then he preached a while there and had some success. But again, uh, he had success, but it always ended up with having hostility as well. So he was not welcomed in Athens anymore. So he goes across over close by, still in Greece, and that's where he ends up in the city of Corinth. 
Corinth still exists as a city today. You can go over there and visit and take a tour and see some remains from 2,000 years ago and even older than that. There are a few pockets of people who live there, so it's a real place with a real history, which tells us again the Bible is real and true and accurate. And so Paul goes to uh, the city of Corinth at the time, 2,000 years ago, and it was a bustling city, and it was one of the most actually important cities in that area uh, down in southern Greece. And it was strategically located right on the coast uh, where it had two different seaports, and so there are all kinds of people coming with ships from Rome on this side and then all kinds of ships coming over here uh, on the other side. And so it was a major cul-de-sac of people going to and fro and doing business from literally two ends of the world. And so at the very nexus was this city called Corinth, and it was a bustling city and kind of the capital city of that area uh, with a lot of people. And of all those cities in that area, Corinth was known for being a wealthy city and a place where you could go to make lots of money and literally get out of the caste system maybe that you were born into because Corinth was so uh, welcoming to entrepreneurialism and mercantilism and commerce and business and uh, by virtue of the high level of trade from all over the world that went on there. So it was a cosmopolitan city. So it actually gained a, a reputation, Corinth did, of being a wealthy city, a diverse city, a cosmopolitan city, but also a city that prided itself on allowing somebody to go from rags to riches by lifting themselves up by their own bootstraps, by rolling up their sleeves and being self-sufficient and working hard and creating a business and making money and doing rugged individualism and independence. And uh, they were proud of that in the city of Corinth. And they kind of actually came cocky and arrogant in their attitude there in Corinth. And they looked down their nose at all the other surrounding cities around them, like Thessalonica would be an example. So even Thessalonica and Corinth were somewhat close. They were very different in their makeup. And because there was so much travel and commerce and materialism, and oh, they also had major venues of entertainment and it was not rated g or pg entertainment by the way it was probably rated x and a half if there is such a rating but it drew people from all over the world and the entertainment had to do with uh, sexual immorality and that drew all kinds of people from all over the world which took that city down into the gutter this is corinth so people came there to be entertained and to indulge themselves in hedonistic pleasures and sin and that's became uh, an earmark of what the city of Corinth was like so akin to maybe a combination of San Francisco Las Vegas and Amsterdam all rolled up into one and even worse uh, that's what that city was like and so Paul goes into that city as a Christian starts preaching and some people respond positively and stays there a year and a half and he's actually able to plant and begin to build a church and he shepherds this church we don't know how big it was they did not meet in church buildings like this with stained glass windows. They met in believers' homes or sometimes a synagogue, a little building, just a room that maybe everybody got saved there and they turned the Jewish synagogue into a place of Christian worship. And so, that's, so there were many of those that Paul probably had intact when he left after a year and a half of being in Corinth. So Paul starts this church. He brings in the gospel. People get saved. They have little house churches and then after a year and a half, Paul leaves to go to plant other churches, like in the city of Ephesus and others. So now Paul's been away from his church in Corinth that he planted as the pastor and his apostle for up to three and four years now. And he's in the city of Ephesus doing church work there. And Paul keeps getting messages and 
word over the course of probably two years that things are not going so well back in Corinth. There's compromise. There is sin. And it's growing. It is mounting. And he needs to do something about it. This is his church that he pastored. These were the people that he loved and knew. So he feels compelled to do something about it. And because there's a sense of urgency and he can't um, Skype them, and he can't leave right away because he's in the midst of work at Ephesus, he writes this very long epistle called 1 Corinthians, 16 chapters long. By the way, we, he didn't write it in chapters. It's just probably on this big old long scroll or animal skin, stacked about yay high probably. But to go 16 chapters was way out of the ordinary for Paul's day to write a letter like this. That was a lot of work to write on a scroll. Can you imagine that long? Or on animal skin, that's a lot of dead animals. That's pretty sad. But anyway, uh, so he writes this extremely unnormal long letter of concern and admonition and rebuke and correction. And he writes it about three years after he planted that church. And Paul is heavy hearted about the Corinthians and the trajectory that they're on, which is not good. As a matter of fact, a couple of years later, by the time we get to 2 Corinthians, they were worse. And some of those problems became full bloom. But just to remind you of what some of the concerns or reports Paul was hearing about the church at Corinth. Every church has its own personality. And to a large extent, that is determined by the city in which the church resides. That is so true. It is inevitable that the culture that surrounds you will infiltrate, trickle in, leak in to the church that exists there. So there will be attitudes, worldviews, practices, habits in your local church that are representative of the culture. And that was true of Corinth. So Corinth had its own unique personality, but also its own unique trials by virtue of the people who became Christians who grew up in Corinth, lived in Corinth, and were in this church. Literally, they brought the world around them into the church. And to some degree, every church does that. So that's a good reminder for us, a sober reminder for GBF. What have we as a church brought into, what have we brought into this church because of the culture in which we live? And I mean the culture surrounding us, not just Mountain View, but the Bay Area. The very secular, atheistic, humanistic Bay Area. Or California. We are in California. Every time I travel somewhere, especially when I go to Texas, especially southern Texas, talk about culture shock. Recently went to Texas, culture shock, even though I've been there, even though I lived in Texas for three years. Every time I go there and if I live in California in the Bay Area, culture shock because it is so different. There's a Texas, at least where I went, church on every corner, a Baptist church on every corner, and everybody's a Christian in Texas, at least where I was. And that ain't so out here in the Bay Area. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of hostility out here. When we moved in this facility uh, back in April, some elders of another church were telling me that they were able to get this facility here in Mountain View because the city of Mountain View was friendly or cooperative towards churches, unlike their dealings of the city in Los Altos that was unfriendly to the church. And these are people who've been indigenous here and been here for 30 plus years working in church ministry. And I just thought that was very interesting. 
which is just a sign and a, a reality. But going back to Corinth, they are in some ways kind of a, a reflection of their culture. And as a result, even though they were Christians assembled together, they brought in stuff from the world into their church. And here are their main problems that Paul was hearing by way of report. Probably the greatest problem was they were divided. They had disunity in their church. There was division in the ranks. They had cliques. They had Christians professing to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ who looked down their nose at other Christians in their congregation. What a contradiction. Been a pastor I have for 20 plus years and there has been division in every church at different levels of every church I've ever been a part of. And it is destructive. And it is the antithesis of what Christ would have for his church. Jesus said in John two times, uh, chapter 13, chapter 17, the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Division is the very opposite of that. Christian, when you are divisive towards one another and there's infighting and cliques and partiality and hatred within the body of Christ, you are distorting and giving a skewed image of what Jesus really looks like to the onlooking, unbelieving world. How dare you? Is what Paul is going to say to the Corinthians. So that was probably their biggest problem in terms of how it manifests itself. Now, that divisive attitude came from other bigger problems from the inside, like their unbridled pride and arrogance. You had a lot of Christians in Corinth who struggled with arrogance and pride, and Paul's going to rebuke them. He just lays into them chapter after chapter on that issue. And they, and this was a part of their culture. They came, uh, maybe some of them, as a nobody, and they came to Corinth, and they became rich because of their own business and hard work, and see what I can do and how I made myself advanced and self-advancement and rugged individualism and how I have achieved this status in society and in my culture and all this money I make and then brought that attitude into the church with the body of Christ. With a very arrogant, self-sufficient attitude, which again is the very antithesis of what it means to be a Christian. Because Christianity is all about Christ, not about you or me, right? So they had a major problem with division. As a matter of fact, he tackles that in chapter 1 head on. And that's going to be an issue he deals with through the entire epistle. Uh, they had a problem with arrogance and pride. And he told them that point blank in two or three different chapters. You're arrogant. You're, flaunt, you're flaunting it. You're puffed up. Full of pride. The very opposite of humility, which is the mark of a true, mature Christian. So not only did they have division, arrogant, puffed up, puffed up attitudes, they had immorality. They had sexual immorality. They began to get planted and even it's going to grow in this church. And Corinth was a very sexually immoral city. Anything goes. Not only was sexual immorality a part of the entertainment of the city of Corinth, sexual immorality was part of the main religions of the city of Corinth. Imagine that. The temples all around, the altars all around, uh, and they had priestesses that were sexual prostitute priestesses all over the city. That was part of their main religion. Was immoral, ungodly sexuality. And some of them just indulged in that for decades and then it carried over into the church and Paul's got to deal with unbelievable sexual immorality in the church. Their, their view of marriage is just totally warped and distorted. So he has to write the entire chapter, verse, uh, chapter 7 to correct 
that issue among other chapters. And then finally, they were materialistic. Just, and they were into the here and now. Heaven is here on earth. That's what they thought. Because they're very crass, hedonistic, materialistic, here and now view of the world. And that's why with almost every issue that Paul confronts in Corinthians, one of the correctives is getting the Corinthians to remind them about the future and eternity. This world is passing away. 1 Corinthians 7. An entire chapter, chapter 15, about the resurrection and what is to come. And the body in which you live is dying. And so he's going to confront just about every single issue. And part of that variable of a corrective is, man, Christian, you've got to get your eyes off of this world in the here and now and on the future and on Christ and on His return and heaven and eternity and have an eternal perspective because that will change everything. It will change how we think and view the world and even ourselves as a Christian. So those are the main problems. Division, immorality, arrogance, pride, and materialism. Those are the problems that the Corinthian church had. By the way, just by way of reminder, I've said it and I'll just keep saying it because it's so simple and we need to hear it. Satan attacks every church, every legitimate church. He is continually on the prowl. He is the destroyer. Satan is real. He is invisible. He is powerful. He has minions called demons. Uh, They are anti-God. They are hell-bent on destroying Christians, the church, Christ, undermining truth, deceiving people, leading them to hell, doing whatever he can. He is relentless. He is nonstop. And he's powerful. And he's a supernatural being. But the good news is, he's very simplistic in how he attacks Christians and the church. And the way that Satan always attacks a church and seeking to undermine it and destroy it. It's just the three things that Satan is always concentrating on. To destroy its unity, to destroy or compromise its purity, and to destroy or compromise its theology. That's it. Unity, purity, theology. He's pretty simplistic. You can see that in every one of the churches that Paul planted. You can see every one of those elements all throughout the book of Corinthians. This was their problem. Satan was on the attack full force in the area of their unity as believers, into their purity as saints, holy ones, and in terms of their theology, the doctrine that God has entrusted to them. And Paul has to fix a lot of that. So with that, uh, it's just good background as we look now at the greeting that Paul gives the Corinthians. Now, I want to kind of contrast that. I said every church has a personality. And every church dealt with Paul, their pastor, their founding. You would think your founding pastor, you'd actually have some respect for the guy. Or appreciation, or thank God for what he did in your life. And I mentioned this a little bit last week, that the Thessalonians and Philippians really appreciated Paul as their founding pastor. Paul went into a city called Galatia, or an area called Galatia, and he planted the church or churches in Galatia as well. Stayed there, pastored, raised up leaders, gave them the gospel. They believed. He leaves town, stays away for a while, and all of a sudden he hears that they have abandoned the gospel of grace in Galatia at the church. They have embraced a gospel of works. That is the worst thing you can... That is the ultimate compromise because you're compromising the basic purity of the gospel. Paul was furious at the Galatians. But if you read his epistle, Paul to the churches of Galatia, grace and peace to you. Sounds kind of nice. And then he didn't mince words. He goes right in and boom, and he lays into them. And even it reaches a 
climax in chapter 3 when he says, you foolish Galatians. You foolish Galatians. And uh, that's similar to Corinth here. But before Paul does this full-blown reprimand, he still has a shepherd's heart for his people. He realizes, yeah, they're blowing it. They're compromising. They're divisive. They're being a lousy testimony. They're creating great problems. They're saying things they shouldn't be saying. But at the same time, they're still Christians. They're believers. They're the church. So that's in the forefront of Paul's mind. And I need to treat them like the saints. What they need now is a shepherd. And I'm going to be a shepherd. I'm going to be a balanced shepherd. And so that's why Paul begins his letter the way that he does. So let's go ahead and look at it. Uh, And I want to read verses 1 through 9. And just keep in mind the gracious words of Paul in light of all the compromise that currently actually exists in the church of Corinth. All its immorality, division, hatred, everything else, arrogance, and how gracious How lovely, how pastoral Paul is in terms of being composed and controlled by the Spirit of God and no doubt needing supernatural restraint to rein in his emotions. And he says this to them, Paul called as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. To those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. Saints by calling with all who in every place call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always concerning you. That's an amazing statement. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you. So that you are not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Literally, the Greek text says, faithful is God. It's emphatic in terms of God's faithfulness. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. You know, some would read the nature and the conduct and the words of the Corinthians and immediately conclude and prejudge them and say, well, they probably weren't even Christians at all. I, I hear Christians do that a lot. Too quickly judge another Christian by virtue of that Christian's compromised behavior or compromised words, and they automatically say, well, they're probably not in a Christian. They're probably not even saved. Well, that's wrong, actually. That's illegitimate. We don't know the human heart. Only God does. And also, if we do have reason to question their behavior and the legitimacy of their faith, Jesus has put in place the the discipline process, which is very specific, four specific steps, to bring that out and bring it to the surface for us to actually examine objectively where they stand in terms of true faith or not. And so the Apostle Paul doesn't rush to judgment. He assumes they are actually Christians. He is giving them the benefit of the doubt. They, When I went into Corinth, they heard the gospel. They received it. They embraced it. They believed it. Uh, we had fellowship together. We prayed together. I was there for a year and a half. And I'm just going to assume they really are Christians. They are Christians, but they're messed up. Newsflash, Christians are messed up. Is the book of 1 Corinthians practical? Is there anything we can take away? Yeah, there's our first point. Uh, Christians can be pretty messed up. Christians can sin. 
Christians can compromise and grossly so. Yet the grace of God is greater than all of our sin, isn't it? The grace of God is greater than all of our sin. There is nobody here who is a worse sinner than some of these Corinthians who got saved. And that, that's a great message of hope. Because here is how God would view you, Christian, despite your sin and your compromise and what else you've done and what else I've done. Uh, if God were talking to us, this is how He'd talk to us very graciously, reminding us of who we are in Christ first. Remember who you are. Remember how you got saved. Remember what I saved you from. Remember your status and standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what He's doing. Which takes us to point number one. And just by way of review, point number in terms of a, a as Christians, we are called to a life of grace. Despite all of our sin, our weaknesses, our shortcomings, a Christian lives in the sphere of grace. And we talked about last week what grace is. Grace is unmerited favor. It is undeserved goodness and blessing that God showers upon the believer by virtue of their faith in the crucified and risen Jesus Christ. Ongoing blessing, ongoing mercy, ongoing gifts from God that are undeserved, unmerited. You can't earn them. None of us deserves it. It's just by God's sheer goodness and His love and mercy that He pours out goodness on us. That is grace. Grace eliminates the human factor. It's all of God. It is initiated by God. And so that's what Paul is emphasizing here as he's talking to these pathetic, compromised, sinful Corinthians. You have been called to a life of grace. And there's evidence of it already. And so he reminds them of that we're called to a life of grace. And point number one last week was that we are called to grace by authority, divine revelation. God saves the sinner using truth that is supernatural outside of ourselves that came from God. It came from his mind and came to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not human wisdom. It is not human tradition. It's nothing that human beings have conjured up. It's not works righteousness. It is the sheer revelation of the great saving news that Jesus Christ, the God-man, has come down from heaven, lived a perfect life for 33 years, willingly died on a cross to get executed and absorb the holy wrath of God Almighty the Father on behalf of sinners so that Jesus might be punished for the substitute for the sinner. And then He was buried, rose again from the dead, ascended on high, reigns as King of kings and Lord of lords of the entire universe and is on a rescue mission to seek and to save sinners. That is Jesus. That is the good news. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ that saves people. All of God, all initiated by God, by God. And God is still doing that today. And that is by, so we've been called to grace by God's authority. It had nothing to do with us. So let's go on to point number two. As Christians, we're called to a life of grace. And Paul's going to highlight in verse 2 that this life of grace, we're called to grace, I'm going to say, for community. For community. And I want to emphasize the word community because the Apostle Paul in verse 2 emphasizes community. The community of the body of Christ. I don't know about you, but when I was not a Christian, I lived life for myself. I was a lone ranger. I was my own captain. I did my own thing. I had my own agenda. I could care less about community. I didn't even know what that was. It was all self, self, self. That's pretty typical of the average person, by the way, particularly those who are not saved. Uh, they don't live for community. They live for self. And so when you get saved, you are transformed and added into a community that is supernatural and totally different than anything that 
you've ever known as an unbeliever. And so when you get saved, you are immediately transformed into a community of fellow believers. And so Paul is emphasizing that, hey, Corinthians, when you got saved, you something changed. You became a new creature. And one of the main things that changed when you got saved as a self-centered, sinning individual is you became a community individual. You became a part of something larger than yourself. You were saved unto community. You were saved for community. You were saved for fellowship. You were saved for interaction with others. You were saved for interdependent relationships with fellow believers around you. That's why the imagery all throughout the New Testament of the church is always corporate. Corporate. It's not just you. It's not just me. There are no Lone Ranger Christians. We were saved unto and for community. And so Paul actually is trying to emphasize this all throughout these nine verses because when he emphasizes community and the reality of community and that you're a part of a bigger group of people, then that undermines a divisive attitude and a cliquish attitude that they had because they had problems with cliques and division. They looked down their nose at the guy or sister next to them in the church. I'm better than you. I'm greater than you. I don't need to be a part of you. I don't need to interface or interact with you or do ministry with you or hang out with you. I just do my own thing or I only hang out with my best friends or my super Christian friends and uh, we have our own spiritual cul-de-sac of a club and you can't be a part of it. Our holy huddle. That was literally their attitude. And so Paul is just, even in the, the introduction of greeting them, complimenting them, encouraging them, Paul is actually foreshadowing and laying the table of how he is going to challenge them in terms of their divisive, cliquish attitude. You are a part of a community. So those metaphors that Paul uses, that Jesus uses of the church throughout the New Testament that speak of the corporate nature of the church by virtue of its very nature, family. Family, think of that. You are a member of a family. In other words, there are other siblings in the spiritual family. And get this, there are other siblings just as important as you are. There are other siblings that the father likes just as much as he likes you. And that's why when the disciples said to Jesus, Jesus, teach us how to pray. Jesus said, pray this way. Our father, our plural community. It's not me, 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 I, I, I. It's our father who art in heaven. Father with many children who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us, us community this day. Our daily bread. It's all plural. It is all community. It is all family. That's just Inherent, it is innate to the nature of the church, community. By the way, people will sometimes say, I don't feel a sense of community. Well, then there's something wrong. Because community is not a feeling. Community is not an emotion. Community is a biblical truth. And if you're a Christian, you've been saved unto community, whether you can find it or not, feel it or not, discover it or not. You've been saved unto a community. So there's a metaphor, the family of God. Uh, Paul also calls the church uh, a body. It means many members, a plurality, corporate independence. Uh, Peter and Paul both use the church as also a temple, a temple with many stones, many different stones, but corporately put together for one function. So all these metaphors speak of community and that's our very identity. There are no individualistic attitudes that should be reigning supreme in the church. This is very contrary to the, to the world. This is very contrary to our culture, to America. 
This idea of community. I'm not talking about communism. That's something different. I'm talking about legitimate, biblical, God-ordained community of loving one another and interacting with fellow saints as one body in Jesus Christ. This is contrary to our world and to our culture that says live for self. It's all about you. Self-centered, hedonistic pursuits, which is so typical of our culture that flies in the face of the biblical call and reality that we are saved unto and called unto community. And if you're a parent and you have more than one child, you know what this means. As a dad, I do not have the prerogative or the privilege of my four children to like one more than the other three. That's not an option. I love all four the same. Despite their personalities, despite their challenges, uh, some are better at other times and so on. It doesn't matter. We're a family. We're siblings. And that's also true in the church. That should be your attitude. They're a part of my church. They were saved by Jesus. We have the same Lord. We have the same Father. I love them all the same. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Love every Christian the same. And that needs to be our attitude. And also as a pastor, very important to us as elders and pastors. That's how I view the church. Okay, we've got about uh, 200 people to go to GBF. Uh, we've got about 137 members. And then I go down the list of 137. Okay, I like this member, but I don't like that one. And that one gets on my nerves. And they're kind of irritating. They don't show up, and I'm glad. Don't do that. I actually don't have the prerogative, the ability, the right to like one member more than another. Guess what? I actually, truly, honestly, I actually love all 137 members of GBF the same. Because I have to, and it's a supernatural enablement by God, because that's the Christian ethic. And that's how we need to live. The Corinthians did not think this way. They did not live this way. They lived just the opposite. This was a, they were clueless to this concept of community. They were all about self, all about our clique, all about our huddle, all about our small group. So Paul is actually going to smash that in verse 2. So he writes to them, so let's go ahead and look at it, that we were called to community. And look at the many references where he's foreshadowing that very component. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. This is profound. In terms of the way Paul writes, he wrote 13 epistles. He wrote to all the churches, introductions. He always said grace to you and peace. He always said Paul. So there were some things the same. But in the introductions, there's always something different depending upon what church he's writing to, because he's trying to emphasize a truth they need to hear. And so what he's trying to emphasize in the introduction of the Corinthians is they need to be hammered on this idea of community and unity versus division and cliques. They need a broader perspective. They need to get their head up and see the broad body of Jesus Christ and not just in the local congregations of Corinth, but around the entire area of Greece and around the world. Their church was not an island the church is bigger than that. The church is broader than that. And so here's where he reminds me. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Now, the reason this is unique in Corinth in this letter, 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is the only place where Paul says, to the church of God. In Thessalonica and Galatia, he said, to the church at Galatia, to the church at Thessalonica. Here to the Corinthians, he says, to the church of God. Because he wants to remind the Corinthians, it's not about you. You're so self-sufficient and arrogant in your attitude. Uh, you need a reminder it is about God and Jesus Christ. Without him, you have nothing. Without him, you are nothing. It is the church of God. And because it's the church of God and not the church of Corinth, I don't answer to you. 
I answer to God Almighty, whom I'm apostle of. So that is unique, even in that little phrase, to the church of God. And he's emphasizing unity to the to the and also the fact that he uses the word church in a singular form to the church. The church of God. So even though there's a lot of locations and even though maybe there's nine house churches in Corinth, it is one church. There's a singularity. There is unity, Corinthians, and you need to be reminded of that there is one church of God, no matter how many local uh, manifestations of it there are. And so this is a, a temptation of churches sometimes, uh, whether they have great doctrine or they're known for their great music program or their great tradition and their great history and their great location and their great evangelism program. And it is very easy to begin uh, start getting proud of yourself as a local church, thinking you have the corner on the truth as a church. I know churches like that. Sadly, I have worked at churches like that. And it is the wrong attitude when a leadership team uh, or just the church views themselves that way. If, uh, you know, if only these other churches could be as good as our church. Our church is the best. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This competitive spirit and attitude that has no place in the plan of God. It is one church in local manifestations throughout history, all, and Jesus Christ is the head, and all of us are under Christ, and we have nothing and we are nothing without Jesus Christ the head. It is his church. And that's what Paul's emphasizing here, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. Uh, and then he says, to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus. I'm writing to you, Corinthians, and even though you are compromised, there's sexual immorality going on in your church, so disgusting that I don't even want to talk about it, according to chapter 5 of the reports of it. You brought the sinful culture from outside into your church. It, you are blatant. You're even bragging about your sexual immorality. You have a horrible reputation among the other churches because of it. So there was just gross compromise in the life of individual Christians in Corinth. And yet look at how Paul addresses them. He says, to those who have been sanctified. And literally sanctified means to those who have been set apart. To those who have been, get this, made holy. Paul is recognizing that even though they are sinful, another great reality is they have been set apart and made holy by God. And so here's this very important truth that all of us can apply to our own life. Despite the fact that we all have sin living in us and that we all battle sin every day of our life, the rest of our lives, if you are a Christian and have embraced the gospel of Jesus Christ and have been born again, this truth that Paul is saying is true of you. It's a glorious truth. And it happened when you got saved. It happened when you believed. The moment you believed and became a Christian, literally, this is what God did. What did He do? He sanctified you in Christ Jesus because of your belief in Jesus Christ. He sanctified you. What does that mean? He set you apart. He took you out of the world. There was a supernatural transaction that went on and you were born again and taken from the kingdom of Satan and added into the family of God and He put the Spirit of God to live in you and you have been made holy. And this is a positional understanding, a legal understanding that God is talking about here. So He's talking about your position in Jesus Christ. Not your ongoing practice, which is compromised and we make mistakes. He's talking about your legal theological, spiritual standing, status, position before God Almighty right now, if you are a Christian, is that we have been set apart in Jesus Christ. We have been separated unto holiness for Jesus Christ. So when God the Father looks down from heaven right now and looks at you, if you're a Christian, guess what he sees? He sees that you are set apart, you are holy you are sinless, you are forgiven, you are as white as snow, smothered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Hence the phrase, in Him. Isn't that amazing? That is your position in Christ. That is different than your practice in Christ. Practice is your ongoing daily battle behavior. 
working out your salvation in fear and trembling. Right here he's talking about your position, your salvation, or your position that happened at the point of salvation. And so this is true. How ironic that he's saying this to the Corinthians. And it's kind of a, it's a blessing to them, but at the same time it's a reminder. Wow, that's kind of weird or inconsistent that you're living grossly and immorally and yet you're the same people that God saved and set you apart and made you holy and called you to a life of holiness. And here, you're not being holy. So you're being inconsistent with your very nature. Is really what he's saying. You've been called unto holiness. You've been set apart by God through the act of salvation in Christ Jesus to be sacred, to be holy, to be pure. He emphasizes it, reiterates it in the middle of verse 2. He says, uh, you have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling. Uh, that word saints, hagios, actually means holy ones. I like that better because the word saint has been so misused for such a long period of time. We hear the word saint, at least in many quarters of our culture, when you think of saint, you think of hmm, some exceptional, rare, unique Christian who died 200 years ago, who had miracles happen after they died, who the church and other spiritual people canonized them and voted on whether they could be a saint or not after they were dead. That's how most people understand this word saint. When in the New Testament, it is clear. Get this. Every Christian is a saint. Saint Clifford, that is my name. And the word literally is holy one. Holy one. If you are a Christian, you are a holy one. And again, this talks about your position in Christ. And you may be thinking, wait, wait a minute, I'm having an identity crisis because I live with myself and I know I'm not always holy. As a matter of fact, I can be pretty yucky sometimes. Again, Paul is emphasizing our position in Jesus Christ. Our legal spiritual status before God the Father by virtue of our belief in the work of Christ. We have been declared holy. All sins forgiven, you are holy. You are pure. You are sacred and accepted before God Almighty by virtue of your relationship with Jesus Christ. That is amazing. How encouraging is that? And that Paul is sincerely trying to encourage the Corinthians. He doesn't want to just go in and have a fist fight and put them on the defense. That'll come in 2 Corinthians. But anyway, he's encouraging them with real truths. Man, you have been set apart by God to live separate, holy, unique, and distinct and not be like the world. That's another thing that the word holy or sanctified means. It comes right out of Leviticus 19 where God said, I am holy, therefore you are to be holy. And, what he, and he went on to define it through the whole chapter. What it means to be holy is to be set apart from the godless culture around you. And that was one of the greatest problems the Corinthians had. They were not separated from the godless culture around them. Maybe you're not acting separated and holy, but by virtue of God's decree and your belief in Christ, you are in fact holy and separated. Therefore, live accordingly. You are a dog. Therefore, quit meowing. It's silly. So he's talking about the very nature of a Christian. Get this. You are saints. You're holy by calling. You're saint whoever. Fill in the name. How did, when did I become a saint? When you got saved. That's what by calling means in the middle of verse 2. The call of God used by Paul every single time in the New Testament always refers to an efficacious or effective call unto salvation that changes the person from the inside out. Always, always, always. And you have been called. You have been saved by God's sovereign initiative. He 
plucked you out of the sinful world. He saved you. He changed you. He made you a holy one. Therefore, Corinthians, man, you've got to live accordingly. Otherwise, you're a walking contradiction. And then in the last phrase of verse 2, he wants to accentuate again this idea of the community. That it's not all about you. It's about the family of God. And not just here in Corinth, but the family of God in all the churches in Asia and all the churches in the Middle East and in all the churches all over the world and all time. And so he does that at the end of verse 2 after reminding them of their position in Christ, that they are holy. He says, To the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who have been sanctified or set apart in Christ Jesus, saints or holy by your very calling, by virtue of salvation, with all the saints. See, there it is again. It's not about you, it's about community. Quit being divided, quit being in your cliques, quit being prejudicial, quit judging. Live in community, God's called you to community. It's with all, join hands with all. Who in every place, get that, every place is beyond the confines of the local city of Corinth and the Corinthian church. It's with all the saints everywhere. It's with all the saints in Thessalonica, with all the saints there in Jerusalem who are undergoing suffering. And, and Paul's going to make an appeal to the Corinthians to look outside of themselves and ask them for money to give to the poor Christians that live in other places like in Jerusalem. And they will. But they need to understand this reality first, that we're believers not just on an island. We're believers in a larger family with a greater community that's headed by Christ. And we need to have that attitude with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And he's, he says that phrase, everybody becomes a Christian by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That means by putting faith in Jesus Christ. And here he's reminding the, the Corinthians, you are nothing special because there are many of the Corinthians who thought they were super elite Christians. We know this from 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, where they were flaunting their spiritual gifts big time. And they were proud of it. And they thought they were elitist Christians. They thought they lived on a higher plane as Christians and that most Christians were down here. And they were the super Christians with their super spiritual gifts. I'm a super big shot Christian. So Paul, with this beautiful, subtle reminder that levels the playing field in terms of our attitude that there aren't super christians and non-super christians every christian is the same because every christian got saved the same because every christian at one time was a pathetic condemned sinner who couldn't save themselves and the one thing we all have in common is we had to beat our chest at one point cry out to god as a despicable sinner and and ask god to save me and that's what we all did and that's what he means by by the way Every Christian in every place gets saved the same way. It's all about Jesus Christ, not about you. It's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, believing in him. That's the only way to get saved. That's the only way to be spiritual. It's the only way to be accepted. We have nothing. We offer nothing. We initiate nothing. We can't preserve our own salvation. There's nothing we can do. It is all about Christ. It's all about him as Lord. And then uh, he throws in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word Lord was a very specific word used in the city of Corinth where you were mandated as a citizen of the city of Corinth and as the Roman Empire to pay homage and allegiance to Lord Caesar, Curios Caesar, by penalty of death. This is scary stuff. You're Christians. Are you really then you get saved the same way everybody else does. You're part of a bigger family community. It's not about you. We need some humility. 
We need to view ourselves properly. It's not about you. It's not about me. It's not about how great we're at. It's about the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord means master. We are merely slaves. We are merely called to obey him. And if it means losing our life in the face of the Caesars, so be it. So this is a great challenge that Paul gives the Corinthians to bring them to their senses and maybe even vet out phony pseudo-unbelievers who just had a profession or confession and were not truly born again. But again and again, you can just see the subtleties of all these phrases that he uses very specifically under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. No word is lost. No word is superfluous. No word is just happenstance or chance. Every single word and phrase and preposition used in this introduction is intended by God to use Paul to deal with the Corinthians and their problem and to help them grow in grace and get their eyes off of self and get their eyes on the great Lord Jesus Christ. That's a great reminder for us. So I'm going to leave you at that. And I just pray that the Spirit of God brings some of these truths to our reminder throughout the week and even this day that God has he saved us by grace. He initiated salvation. It had nothing to do with us. It is a glorious, wonderful calling that started in eternity past, transacted in time, carries on to a beautiful culmination in the future, which we're going to see next week with the Apostle Paul. Jesus Christ is the head of the church. We are blessed additions by virtue of being a part of the family and the spiritual community of the body of Christ, serving Him all for His glory. With that, let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank You for our time together. Thank You for the Word of God. Thank You for 1 Corinthians and how You have preserved it for us for 2,000 years. Believers, through the ages, literally have spilled their blood to protect, preserve, and perpetuate Scripture for us. God, we thank You for that just amazing gift. Thank You for the living Word and these truths that are relevant and practical to our life today. God, may we be humbled by these great truths and Your great glory. With these truths, we'd be put in the proper place as sinners saved by grace, overflowing with thanksgiving and worship to you the deserving king of kings and it's in your name that we pray amen thank you for listening dr mcmanus is an author seminary professor and pastor teacher of grace bible fellowship for more information about dr mcmanus other messages or resources please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009